Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, if you would... Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 today. Matthew chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible. We have Bibles in the back there for you. That's our gift to you. We want to make sure that you got God's Word in your hand. As you turn there, let me just give us a review here over the last several months. Really, we have taken our time, haven't we? Learning about Jesus' first sermon to His disciples. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's in this first sermon where Jesus teaches his disciples how to be happy. He teaches us how not to have a care in the world. Um, It really, you know, this this text really is the prelude to Matthew 6.33 where he says, Seek first the kingdom of God. Last Sunday we studied the ending of of what we call the Beatitudes within Jesus' sermon. And we learned how Jesus prepared and really he prophesied what would happen to us as his disciples for living a beatitude style life. And Jesus prepared us for insults, persecution, slander. Boy, that sounds like a good time, doesn't it? Why did did he do that? A couple key points from last week. Number one, we said that godliness triggers hostility from the world. And then secondly, we said persecution is evidence of salvation. So in other words, you as a Christian, you've come to the point in your Christian life that you just don't care anymore about your reputation. You no longer give a rip about people rolling their eyes at you. It no longer hurts your feelings when people point or maybe they laugh in your face for sharing the gospel. How is that possible? I mean, think about it. I mean, you used to care a lot about your personal reputation. And now not so much. I think the answer to that is that comes along with spiritual maturity, doesn't it? You're growing up in the Lord. You realize that our time here on earth is short. Um, and all these different forms of persecution prove that you, that you are who you say you are. You're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you would think after last Sunday's message, everybody listening to Jesus would you know, talk about being persecuted for their faith. They would go hide in a, in a monastery. They would want to get away from the world and avoid all this persecution. And you might even think that Jesus would suggest that so so they can protect themselves. But that is not what Jesus says today. Directly after Jesus taught his disciples to rejoice and be glad in the persecution of their faith because of Jesus, Jesus then in his next breath, he tells them to go back into the world and share this gospel message regardless of the cost. In John's gospel, Jesus prays this prayer for the disciples. In John 17, he says, the world hated them 
because they are not of this world. Just as I am not of this world, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, Lord, but that you protect them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, I I also have sent them into the world. So as we know, the disciples, they did not go and build a monastery. They stayed in the world to be witnesses to the world. And in Acts 17, well, that's the story of Acts, right? We see the the apostles going and, and the Lord working through them to build his church. And I love this verse, Acts 17, 6. There's, there's this, this angst uh, in the city, and, and these people start saying, well, these men, these apostles, these disciples of Jesus, they've turned the world upside down. And now they've come here, and they're getting ready to do the same thing. Pretty amazing. And today, Jesus uses two analogies to give us a word picture here uh, of what it really looks like for us to do that. He says that we are salt and we are light. Today's lesson, the Lord summarizes uh, a disciple's function and purpose and role. And by studying the the Beatitudes here, we've learned how Jesus told the disciples how to get their sinful hearts right before a holy God. And now Jesus tells us what to do with our very imperfect, righteous lives. So in other words, disciples are to be witnesses to the world. Now I want you to think about this, because as we we study today's scripture passage, it's, it's, it's very clear that the world has no other way of knowing this kind of truth except through his disciples. There is no plan B. You are the plan if you're a disciple of Jesus. And that's what the Great Commission is all about. So today's lesson includes a directive from the Lord himself. What is that directive? What's the command? How do you apply it to your lives today? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 and following. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste... How can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and gives light for all uh, who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And this is the word of the Lord for River Bible Church this morning. Please be seated. Thank you. All right, let's take a deeper look here at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. We mentioned that Jesus changed his speech pattern last week in the middle of the final beatitude. We went from a third person to a second person pronoun, meaning that Jesus is emphatic here. He is direct. He is clear to who he is speaking to. He said he went from blessed are those to you are blessed. And today that theme continues within his analogies of salt and light. 
The interesting thing about the grammar that, that Jesus uses here in verse 13 is that the pronoun you is also plural. It's sue in the Greek, meaning all the disciples, right? The entire church, the whole body of Christ, all y'all, everybody's included. And the reason that he does that, I mean, think about it. He's using the analogy of salt. So when you grab a salt shaker to season your food, you don't put one little isolated gram on your dinner, do you? No, you give that thing a good shake, you season the, the, whole, the whole dinner. So Jesus uses this salt analogy because spiritually speaking, you as an individual disciple, you've got limited, you have a limited influence, you have limited time, you have limited gifting. But when we come together like this, like we are today, we're able to work as a team here and we're to sustain the calling of the Great Commission that was given to the original disciples. And it's in this way that we're a team. That's called the local church. So God allows us to participate in something that's way bigger than ourselves here. The church has always been plural. The church was designed to be in a community because the church represents God himself. Um, God himself is three persons and one God, right? So that's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So he himself is a community, and that's what the church looks like as well. So back to verse 13, he says, you... Y'all, and then he says, are, are, emi in the Greek, you are something, the verb to be there. Jesus is stating a fact. He, he says, you are, as a disciple, you are something. It's part of our spiritual DNA. It's a component of being born again. Now, the question is, you're what? What are you? Back to verse 13, he says, you are the salt. You are the salt. Now, that's a bit weird. Jesus, obviously, using an illustration here. Uh, now, we do have to pause and make sure that we're all on the same page. Because when we think of salt, most of us immediately think of a purified and processed 21st century version of table salt. Uh, we generally think of some kind of fault, uh, salt as a food additive. Morton's. Everybody's got Morton's on their table. Um, that's not what Jesus is referring to here. So let's make sure that we don't put our thoughts and our opinions on the text. That's called eisegesis. We don't want to do that. What we want to do is we want to pull out the historical, the literal, the grammatical truths of the text itself. That's called exegesis. We want to excavate the truth. Um, we want to be on the same page as our author, uh, Matthew, here. So the salt that Jesus is referring to is way different than ours. So let me give you some background on this. Salt, one of the most common substances on the earth, it's known as white gold. Salt is one of the most significant substances in all of history. It is as essential as iron, gold, and wheat. Uh, salt in the first century uh, was much more than just a seasoning for food. It was also an economic commodity. So as you read through the scriptures here, you're going to notice that salt was used in many, many ways. For example, within the Old Testament sacrificial system, 
uh, we'll come across the salt of the covenant, right? In, in Numbers 18 or Ezekiel 43. Salt was used within the grain offering in Leviticus chapter 2. It served as a symbol of purity in Exodus chapter 30. Salt was used within the temple. It was given to the priest in Ezra 6 and 7. Uh, but despite all the practical and all the spiritual uses of salt, it can also lead to death. Uh, land, we know, with too much salt, uh, like the salt flats, the salt marshes, the pits, those things are in- uninhabitable. Salt was also used in war. Scripture tells us that armies would use salt to destroy the enemy's land. Deuteronomy 29 and Judges 9, Zephaniah chapter 2. The Bible also correlates salt with judgment, disobedience. Uh, For example, Lot's wife, remember that story? She was turned into a pillar of salt. Why? Because of her disobedience. She literally became a monument to God's wrath for wickedness in Genesis chapter 19. Moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see Jesus correlate salt with discipleship. So along with our text today, Jesus calls his disciples to have salt within themselves in Mark chapter 9. The Apostle Paul, he commands the church in Colossae to, to season their speech with salt in Colossians 4, 6. And then most importantly, especially in our context today, Scripture uses salt as a symbol of life. It's known as a symbol of life because salt is a preservative Salt delays the decaying process when you rub it in the meat. And so as you guys know, obviously the people in the ancient world, they didn't have refrigerators. So if they wanted to keep their food uh, from spoiling, they had to cover it. They had to, they had to embed it with salt. The Romans believed that except for the sun, the S-U-N, uh, nothing was more valuable than salt. In fact, Roman soldiers were often paid with salt. It's where the expression, he's not worth his salt, that's where that comes from. We get our English word salary from salt. So to follow Jesus' analogy here, one task of the church is to help prevent the world from self-destruction. So for example, if you look back on history, the Christian church, more than any other institution, has restrained evil by being responsible for higher education, Hospitals, orphanages, adoption services, even the arts, music, painting, literature. So in a very real, uh, in a very real sense here, the, the church has been the preservative that God has used to keep civilization from imploding it on itself. So back to verse 13, he says, you are the salt, the preservative of the earth. Earth is yea in the Greek. So on one side of Jesus' analogy, there's an earthiness to his example. You're a preservative for the land and the, and the soil that God has created. We are stewards of the things that God has given to us. And then on the flip side of that, you are the salt to the world system. All of, the, all of its decaying morality. Jesus goes on in verse 13. He says, but if the salt should lose its taste... How can it be made salty? 
atheists and secular scientists and liberal theologians, they love to take their shots at this verse. You know, they say that salt, you know, it's sodium chloride. It can never, ever lose its taste. So Jesus is wrong here. Well, they would be missing the point of, of Jesus's spiritual analogy entirely. Jesus is not talking about sodium chloride from the 21st century. What he is talking about is salt that was used in the first century Israel. The Dead Sea is just southeast of Jerusalem. It is the saltiest body of water in the world. It's a salt mine. Salt from this area can be mined in three ways. From the salt cliffs, from the marshland, and also, this is impressive, they can evaporate it and process it and make the salt. But here's the deal. The, the Dead Sea salt, it's not pure. It's mixed with, with other minerals, especially what's called gypsum. People make jewelry from gypsum. So this salt from the Dead Sea, it could be tasteless, it could be stale, it could have this alkaline taste to it, to where it tastes like metal or jewelry. And because that's the original context of what Jesus is talking about here, Jesus says in verse 13, if the salt should lose its taste, how could it be made salty again? That phrase there, lose its taste, in the Greek, it's moreno. We get our English word moron from it. <laughs> Jesus is speaking about our foolish and our sinful behavior. Uh, this disciple who Jesus refers to, this person who has lost his saltiness, he's not acting as a preservative to a decaying world. Jesus is referring to someone who calls himself a disciple and yet lives an ungodly lifestyle. Nothing is preserved when this man goes out into the world. So back to verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? Well, how do you lose something? You lose it by accident. We lose things by being irresponsible or just a lack of our priorities. So what do you do when someone who has professed Jesus Christ as Lord... They said that they believe that Jesus is God's son and that he was resurrected from the dead. This person was baptized. He was discipled by others. And yet, when you look at, the, at his Christian life, he's not growing up into spiritual maturity. They continue to act like a moron. What are you, what are you supposed to do with that person? This person who refuses, who hasn't prioritized the faith. Well, it's no secret. Jesus tells us right here in verse 13. It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So in other words, this disciple's witness is worthless. He's doing more harm than good. If we're not the salt of the earth, it probably is because we've allowed the world to contaminate us instead of us be a preservative to the world itself. That's the manner in which Jesus speaks here. If a disciple is contaminated and he refuses to separate himself from the world, he will lose his saltiness. Luke's gospel says this, salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty again? Jesus goes on to say this, 
it isn't even fit for the soil or for the manure pile. Wow, talk about being good for nothing. <laughs> wow. You got to throw it out. And then Jesus says this. He says, let anyone who has ears, let him hear this. Man, this is serious. Please note here that Jesus is not referring to Christians losing their salvation. He's not talking about that. There are many, many other passages in Scripture um, that talk about the security of salvation. But Christians can lose their effectiveness when, um, when sin continues to contaminate their own lives. So as, Jesus, so as a disciple of Jesus, what are you to do if you feel like you're losing your saltiness? What are you to do? Are you becoming lethargic and maybe lazy regarding your faith? Are you becoming uncompassionate towards people? Are you becoming angry for whatever reason? Dear friends, the, the answer to any of those questions is, is we are to push back on the world. We're to stop doing what we're doing. We're to do something different and to surround ourselves with people who love and fear God. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I discipline my body. Discipline comes from the word disciple. I bring it under strict control. Why? Why do you do that, Paul? So that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. See, to lose our saltiness, it's not to lose our salvation, but it is to lose our witness. And if we lose our witness, we lose our impact we lose our influence. We temporarily lose the truth and the power of the Holy Spirit. Depending on the sin, the depravity of the sin, the length of sin, and your disobedience towards repentance, you may be disqualified for service and brought home early. In other words, God himself may decide, you know what, enough's enough. I'm going to take you out. Boy, that's a sermon for another day. So Jesus presses in with, with another analogy here. In verse 14, he says, you are the light. We've got the same plural Greek pronoun there, you, that's sue. Emi, you are. Now, this, this verse may seem a bit odd to us because Jesus said, wait a second. He said that he's the light of the world in John chapter 8. But what Jesus is doing here is he's taking that title and he's transferring it over to his disciples. See, our light and our truth and our righteousness, they are a mere reflection of Jesus himself. It's as if Jesus were the sun, the S-U-N. He is the source of light. And we as his disciples are the moon. We reflect the light. The, moon, uh, the moon's core is metallic. The surface of the moon is, it has titanium on it. Titanium is it's the same substance that's in your headlights of your car. We reflect Jesus. We are extensions of him. We are witnesses to him. So this analogy of light is a little bit different from the salt. Salt is hidden and yet light is visible. Salt melts inwardly. Yet light, is, um, light manifests itself outwardly. Salt works covertly and discreetly. 
Light works publicly and boldly. Salt works on the interior while light from the exterior. Salt preserves something slowly while light proclaims something instantly. Salt is mainly a negative in the sense that what it's doing is delaying the corruption. Light is positive, though. It exposes the corruption. Light is so positive in Scripture, it is mentioned 493 times in 403 verses, and that's just in the New Testament. And that's why Jesus says this in verse 14. In verse 14, he says, a city situated on a hill, it cannot be hidden. Have you ever driven from 89A from Sedona into Cottonwood? At night, right? You see Jerome, you see Clarkdale, you see Cottonwood. You cannot not see those three cities. The same thing happens in the first century, right? People used oil lamps to light their homes at night. Oil lamp like this, very little small guy. You put oil in it, you have a wick here. Uh, this one is uh, probably around a thousand years old, um, has a little cross on it. So these guys were Christians and they would have one or several lights that would light up the whole home. Now keep in mind, the home itself usually was just one room. So they would light these things. And Jesus's point is that, look, this city that's built on a hill, you, you're going to see it. You can't not see it. Um, the city is exposed. It's impossible to miss. And that's Jesus' point. And he goes on in verse 15 to say this. No one, no one lights a lamp like this and then puts it under a basket. Nobody does that. What we do is we put this on a lamp stand, right? We put it right there so it illumines the whole room. This statement, verse 15, really is common sense. Many homes in the first century, once again, had one room. Um, and then he goes on in verse 16, in the same way, he says, let your light, let your light shine before others. So here's the directive from our Lord. He says, let your light shine, let your light shine. So as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you, y'all, the whole church, or in Texas, we like to say all y'all right? Um, you have a personal responsibility to shine that light that God has given to you. You are a light to your unbelieving family, your friends, your co-workers, the entire Verde Valley. And because you are light, Jesus commands all of us uh, to go shine it. And the reason for that is because the light that we have, and this is so hard for us to understand, especially me, that God would use me in this way, is that when, pe when people see our light, they see the reflection of Jesus Christ himself, they are changed by it. I mean, we, we can hide the light, but it's pretty much a useless light. That's a selfish light. In verse 16, he goes on to say, so that they may see your good works, your good works, uh, good in the Greek is kolosi. It's good. It's, it's not so much good in, in quality, although the quality is important, but good in attractiveness. There's a, there's a kindness about you. There's a winsomeness about you. 
There's a beautiful appearance about you and your light. And the reason for that is because you're not like the world. You're not as angry as the world is right now. Every little thing. You're different. Verse 16, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So that brings us to key point number one today. We are not only to enjoy God, but we are to proclaim God. We are not only to enjoy God for ourselves. We're not here just to learn a bunch of stuff, right? And go to our Bible study groups and, and, and impress people with all of our knowledge. No, we are to proclaim God who, to people who don't know him. Heaven emphasizes uh, the Father's majesty, his holiness. Uh, man's, our, our goal, man's chief end in this life is to glorify God. So, what does all of this mean for you as a disciple of Jesus today? What's it mean to be salt and light here in the Verde Valley in the 21st century? What is your function? What's your purpose? What's your role as being salt and light? Uh, the answer to that, I think, is very, very simple. We, we tend to overthink this. Many times we're telling God what to do, but when we examine Scripture, um, the answer is that we are to join God where he is leading us. So where's God inviting you this week? Where's he inviting you to go? When you're born again, you become spiritual salt and light. You, 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 you're salt and light. You're a preservative to the world. And as a disciple, Jesus uses your life, as broken and as messed up as it is, to be a witness. Dear friends, this is not about perfection, all right? This is about obedience. Let me think about it. If you are salt, Jesus says you are salt. What you do is you create a thirst for people to know Jesus. Think about that. I do have to put a disclaimer in here for those of you who have a real strong personality type. You are not called to go throw salt in people's eyes. That's a bad move. All right? You don't want to leave a bad taste in somebody's mouth. Salt is a seasoning that makes people thirsty. And then we're also not called to blind people with our light either. You don't want to do that. But we are. We are salt and we are light. By How do we do that? By having a real honest conversation about all the God intersections that God's going to give us this week. Or, or maybe it's a divine disruption to, where God places somebody in your life to where they need spiritual help today. And they're crying out to you. And you are salt and light and God is inviting you into that conversation. You have been gifted... By God, think about this. God has given you an extraordinary way to, uh, to have a noticeable impact in and on the city. You have been wonderfully made. You have a unique influence. You have a distinct witness with the people that you touch. And the reason for that is because you are salt and light. Look, guys, 
We're never going to change the world through politics or worldly education or humanistic morality. We will only change the world by being salt and light. Have you ever noticed that salty people um, unconsciously leave the presence of God wherever they go? How many times have you stepped into a conversation when, when people suddenly stop talking? It's a little bit awkward. Why do, why do people stop telling dirty jokes when you walk around? Why do they apologize when they take the Lord's name in vain and you're standing right there? Think about it. As a salty Christian, your presence in that moment, it temporarily holds back the world's wickedness. That's amazing. You don't have to apologize for that. You know, one of the problems of the church is that we have an identity crisis. And I'm not just talking about River Bible Church, even though we have it here too. I'm talking about the, the church in general. The church doesn't know who it is. We don't know who we are, even though Jesus tells us in this text. And dear friends, if, if we don't know who we are at one time or another, we're going to end up asking questions that go like this. Well, why did God save me? Why has God left me here? In other words, what's my purpose? What am I supposed to do? Why don't, you know, why don't we baptize people and just hold them under the water just a little bit longer and send them to glory? Why don't we do that? Because God has given us a job to do. We have the best job in the world. You're a part of the church. God is inviting you into something that is eternal. Dear friends, there are only two things that are eternal. God's word and God's people. And I say that, and, and you all are part of the most profoundly dysfunctional group of people on the earth. Right? I mean, look around. We're just not that impressive. <laughs> We're not. And yet, here's the thing. God has chosen you to do this. We are to go out into the world and be salt and light. We are not to recoil from it. We are to share the gospel. We are to make disciples. And God has given you a gift to do that. If you don't know your gifting, or maybe when you rebel against your, your spiritual DNA, you will never be happy. You're going to be going from thing to thing to thing, and you're just going to be miserable. Why? Because you are salt and light. We're not happy because of disobedience. We're, we're not happy because of the inactivity in our lives because God has given you a gift and you're not using it. Dear friends, if you're feeling isolated today, if you're feeling alone, that's because you are. It doesn't have to be that way, though. Key point number two, you can't have God's truth without God's people. You can't have God's truth without God's people. Without the church, without you, 
Without you individually, there is no truth. Look at this, Romans 10, 15. How beautiful are the feet of those, of those people, of those Christians, of those disciples who bring the good news. So the primary job of the church is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. The Apostle Paul says this, the church, what we do is we equip you. We equip the saints. Has anybody ever called you a saint? You are. That's another thing that you are. You are a saint. Why? To build up the body of Christ. So Jesus says, you are salt and light. And the question becomes, all right, if that's who I am, am I willing to learn how to use those gifts? So dear friends, let me give you a 10-second commercial. You ready? Once again, you're invited to learn how to be salt and light. This class coming up, the Foundations class next Wednesday, is a perfect opportunity to get to know the people that live in this Verde Valley, that call uh, River Bible Church home. And then not only that, uh, we get to know one another. You make some new friends, and you learn the very foundations of what it means to be a Christian. So once again, uh, Wednesday, September 21st at 6 p.m. right here. All right? Thank you. There's a sign-up in the back. We want you to sign up because we're buying books for you. All right? Um, amen? amen. Y'all with me? Okay. Father in heaven, what a, what a glorious day that you've given to us. Thank you for, for telling us who we are. <laughs> we are salt and light. And Father, we, we don't know what that means. And we desperately, we beg you to show us what that means in our own lives that you will draw out these, these gifts of, of, of how we are to minister to those here in the Verde Valley for the building up of the church. Lord, I continue to pray for these God intersections, for the people who you are drawing unto yourself, and that, that you would allow us, of all, of all people, that you would allow us to come alongside of them and to shine the light to make them thirsty for learning more. What an unbelievable privilege it is to go and make disciples. What an unbelievable privilege it is to invite people to church, to teach them about the one true living God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you, Father, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.